live from the House of LeMay Makeup and Dressing Room. Here comes Amber. Stop what you're doing. Here comes Amber. She's just doing what she can. Here comes Amber. Cue the spotlight. Here comes Amber with two drinks in her hand. The matriarch of fashion. Glasses, you can't look away. Ask her, does she do it? Really nothing to it. She's got that fun on the game. If you have a party, or if you're feeling naughty, call up the house of the maid. Hello, and welcome to the Amber Live interviews. This is Russell, producer and co-host of Amber Live. We want to remind you to subscribe to us both here and at youtube.com slash Amber Live. You don't want to miss a moment of Amber LeMay, the Larry King of drag queens. There's so much more to the show than just the interviews that Amber does each week. We have hundreds of interviews, comedy sketches, songs, and more on YouTube that you can watch anytime. But... In the meantime, you can listen to the amazing interviews right here. Now enjoy this episode of Amber Live Interviews. Here's our interview with Laura Cayouette. Laura Cayouette, come into my basement, please. Hello. <laughs> oh, my gosh. You have such a, a filmography there that we want to talk to. But, all right, I want to ask, how did you get there? You know, it just doesn't happen. Where did you start? And how did your um, career successfully uh, uh, go on? Well, I had an odd start because I didn't dream of being an actor. It wasn't my um, childhood goal. You know, I didn't, I actually didn't even understand that actors, I didn't know that was a job. Like I, I didn't understand that like I dream a genie was getting paid. You know what I mean? Like it never occurred to me. So I didn't have dreams of becoming a movie star or famous or any of that. And, and I am sort of allergic to fame. I don't like, um, I don't like the idea of people going through my trash. I don't like the idea of people caring about my personal life and all that. So, um, yeah, so I didn't really, I didn't pursue it until very uh, late in life for a female because I didn't even pay attention until about 26 years old. And most women's careers are over around 30. So, especially back then. So, um, because this was the 80s. Uh, God, the 80s. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you remember the 80s? <laughs> I do. <laughs> it's all on tape. So, okay. so um, before you started at age 26, where did you grow up and what did you want to be or where did you go to school? I, I was born in D.C. and raised in a Louisiana household in Maryland. So my parents are both from Louisiana. They met at LSU. And then my dad's job was in the DC area. So they moved up there before I was born and I was raised there and Japan. Um, so, uh, yeah. And then, um, I went to university of Maryland, uh, college park for my undergraduate degree in creative writing and uh, no in English literature. And then I got my graduate degree in creative writing and English literature at university of South Alabama. And that's what I, I thought I was going to be a, professor and an author. And I am, I've, I've written eight books and I've taught at multiple colleges, but it just isn't what I 
it isn't the plan I had in mind. It's all a little different. Um, what were your, some of your first writings or your first books? Gosh, you know, when I was a kid, I always wrote. I just, I mean, it was just a habit of mine. It was the way my voice best expressed itself. And really, that's all acting is for me is a new way of expressing voice. It's, it's uh, you know, it's an interesting trick to put your voice in somebody else's voice. You know, you have somebody else's script, and then the director might have a, their voice. And so it's a, it's like, dancing or something it's it's complicated and and tricky as a method of storytelling and then the editor has a whole nother twist they put on things so yeah so that's a that's a much more collaborative way of storytelling i i enjoy directing for the same reason that i enjoy um acting you know it's a collaborative version of storytelling when you write you're like in your room you know what i mean like it's you and a bag of cho you know chocolate chips or something at three in the morning going I don't know I don't know, I don't know. You know? <laughs> so. what were what were some examples of your early writings what what were what was your genre uh well I've actually written in every genre I've, I've I love fiction and I I had wanted to be a fiction author but my best success has actually been in my nonfiction books um yeah I wrote a novel called lemonade farm that is set that was my first novel and that was set in um it's none of those <laughs> but it was set in uh maryland in 1976 um it's a coming of age story of a girl who her she lives in the suburbs and all of the suburban families in her neighborhood all break up at the same time and the broken bits of those families move into a 200 year old farmhouse Ooh. and form like a, a commune like a collective and so it's a coming of age story of a girl growing up in a collective in 1976. And, uh, you know, she's growing as the country's growing, et cetera. Very cool. And what happened to that book or what? Uh... Well, I actually got so worn out writing it. That one took me 20 years to write. And I got so worn out writing it that I lost the energy to properly um, put it out there. And so i i learned a lot from that um and now i when i went to go write my mystery series which is set here in new orleans i wrote whoopsie you say new orleans and bells go off well it's actually commander's palace they want to know about if i want the table for tomorrow <laughs> and i do <laughs> but go, oh, ahead. Wow. go ahead okay hold on <laughs> So continue on. <laughs> okay, so the mystery series, which is set here in, in New Orleans, that I, by the time I got to that, I had already written my nonfiction book of No Small Parts, uh, No Small Parts, K-N-O-W, An Actor's Guide to Turning Minutes into Moments and Moments into a Career with Forward by Richard Dreyfus and endorsements from Kevin Costner and Lou Diamond Phillips and Reginald Hudlin and even more, 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 more. So, um, so I was getting the hang of this whole writing a book thing by then. And so I wrote my five series, my five book series of mysteries, the Charlotte Reed mysteries, five books in four years. Wow. So then, of course, the next book I had to write, which I just put out, was Writing Unblocked, how I went from writing one book in 20 years to five books in four years, <laughs> where I show you how I did that. How did you go from your interest in writing uh, to acting or performing? What was that uh, bridge? You know, I've, I've told this story so many times now, and it's one I never used to tell because it, it has sort of a, a, a woo-woo element. Um, 
but I, you know, life is what happens while you're making other plans. Um, I was uh, teaching college at night. I was teaching college English and I was running a dress shop, a special occasion dress shop for Jessica McClintock in the daytime. And because uh, I was a homeowner, so I had, you know, a mortgage to pay and um, and I was modeling and I was at a gig in New York and I was coming home on the train and I heard a voice and the voice said, you're supposed to be an actor. And I hadn't heard a voice before that and I've not heard one since. And so I paid attention and I don't know why, I still don't know why I'm supposed to be an actor. All I know is that I felt called and I answered the calling. How did you go about answering that calling? Well, I'm a researcher. I'm big into research. It's so great that they invented the internet for people like me because, <laughs> because back then I had to like live in the library and, uh, and, you know, call cold call strangers on the phone and, you know, all kinds of stuff to figure out how to do this. But I, I studied a lot of books, books from the library that, um, all of them basically warn you to never even try that, you know, less than 1% of people in the union make enough money to live. And, you know, so I thought, okay, well then that's the mission. Figure out how to become a one percenter. And at my late age, I thought, well, shoot, if I'm going to be, I'm, you know, I'm around the same age as people like Jodie Foster and, uh, you know, I'm between Jodie Foster and like Charlize Theron. So I'm like in the Julia Roberts, Sandra Bullock area. <clears throat> and I thought, well, those people already have like Oscars and nominations and stuff. So if I'm going to compete with them, I should probably get good. And so rather than, I know it might sound foolish and I think a lot of people do it the other way and are, and are right for doing it that way. A lot of people would never trade one minute of youth for study. I traded my entire twenties for study and my first movie, I was 31, but my first movie was the sequel to terms of endearment with Shirley MacLaine and Jack Nicholson and, you know, a cast of thousands. And I was so good at my audition that even though I didn't get the part for various reasons, the director couldn't sleep at night and wrote a part for me. So I was already that good when I did my first movie. All right. Well, how excited we have. Now we're going to go into your movie career right after this break. We'll be right back. This is Russell, producer and co-host of Amber Live, reminding you that it is your support that keeps us going. You can make a donation through this podcast by using our Venmo at RJD Pro or by visiting us at AmberLive.tv and clicking on the Support Amber Live button. And now, back to this incredible interview. All right, we're back with Laura Cayouette, and we were just talking about her beginnings of her movie career. Tell us more about that. Well, you know, I think the advantage of being older when I started out is that I had- Wait, 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 wait. older, 31. I'll continue. Right, right, right. No, the kiss of death. I was over 30. And I think one of the advantages of that was that I didn't have, I didn't have stars in my eyes. I wasn't confused about who I was. I didn't, you know, like I, I had a sense of self that I think is important. 
and and not just um, to survive the career, but also to bring to the characters, to help you bring characters to life. I think it's important that you that you be in touch with yourself and who you are and how you do things so that you can explore other people's egos before you, you know, let your own trip you up. What did you learn in that first film? Oh my God, so much because Shirley MacLaine is a master and working with her, I learned more in, I think I was there five days, five days of working with her than I could have in five years of study. The, the biggest thing that she taught me, and, and she didn't teach me any of this, she just ran roughshod all over my acting and I learned by going, okay, well, that's not what I want. I want to be her. I don't want to be me who's like the novice that's getting all my scenes stolen right out from me. I want to be the one that knows how to do what she's doing. So I kept watching her and paying attention to what she was doing. And the biggest thing I learned I mean, I could break it all down, the acting stuff and all, but the biggest thing I learned that's like a life lesson was that she gave herself permission to shine. Here that I is, am. Yeah. What was she like off? Did you get a chance to talk to her off camera? Oh yeah. No, when you're working, you, you spend a lot of time together. <laughs> it's a lot. Whether you like it or not, you sort of, um, you know, it's like camp. Um, I... She was not like I had heard she would be. I had heard her described as Hurricane McLean. I had heard her described as difficult, which is a word they use whenever they want to say that a woman, um, what, didn't just lay down? <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so she was considered difficult, etc. But I did not experience any of that. What I saw was a woman who knew exactly what she was doing and exactly the tools she needed to do it and was willing to stake her claim. I just saw her recently on Only Murders in the Building. And oh my yes. God. How old is she now? But she she was solid. She oh, I know. was solid. To me, the biggest acting gasm I've had in the last few years was when she and Maggie Smith shared the screen in Downton Abbey. I was like, oh, <laughs> it was just too much for me. It was definitely like. All right. What happened after that movie? So after that, um, pretty quickly, I ended up doing uh, Enemy of the State. But in between there, I did um, Flipper. <laughs> which shot in Australia, which was a ton of fun. And I did the um, Larry Sanders show with Gary Shandling and David Duchovny was my co-star. I was playing his uh, girlfriend. And um, that episode was really important. It ended up being a uh, TV guide named it. It's 56th best episode of television of all time. That's cool. And Yeah. And then, um, and it won like six Cable Ace Awards and stuff. It was a pretty important episode. So I was very excited to be a part of that. And then after that, I did this little TV show nobody ever heard of called Friends. <laughs> so, yeah. What was, your, what was your character on that episode? I, You know what? It was such an exciting time to be there because um, you might remember that on Friends, there was a moment where all the actors came together and formed their own little mini union and mm -hmm. demanded that they all be paid the same. I was on the first episode after they had settled that. Oh, so they were happy. Yes, and they were empowered. They were empowered in a way they had never been empowered before, and it really impacted the set. And then the other thing that was cool was 
uh, for people who love the show, which now is three generations or whatever of people loving that show. Um, it's right after Ross and Rachel's breakup. And I am Ross's first date. <laughs> so 30. Yeah, right. We were on a break. Exactly. And um, but this was after the breakup breakup, like the real deal breakup. And and so 32 million people tuned in to watch that episode the very first time it aired. I have no idea how many people have seen it now. Oh, how exciting. How exciting. So you wrote this book about, um, um, I'm sorry, Know Your Parts? What no was, Small Parts. No Small Parts. Yes, yes, yes. No Small Parts. Um, tell me about what brought that on. Well, you know, I, I like I said, I read a lot of books. I really did. I read just stacks and stacks of books, and I found a lot of very helpful material, but I never found the book I was looking for, which is often what makes people write a book. Yeah. is they looked and they looked and they looked and it wasn't there. I wanted a book that was practical, that would remove the vagueness, that wasn't just going to be some sort of biography of like, oh, and then I went to this party and I learned that thing about this and this class and whatever. But there would be actual information of here's how I did it. Here's how you could do it. Here's lessons I've learned that I, you know, am paying forward because I have no children and you may as well have it. <laughs> and, you know, so... It's just the truth. And that was the thing that everybody, you know, I, 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 what, bragged that I have all these different endorsements. And I do, I have over a dozen endorsements in that book. And the number one feedback I got back when I first started showing the book around was, I can't believe you told the truth. And setting it like that, like it was a bad thing. <laughs> so, but I did, I told the truth about our industry and how it works and how you can be a part of it. Have you ever seen that represented on the screen anywhere? Pieces, you know, I mean, I will say, you know, when, when movies dive into a world, they often get things wrong, you know, like um, I'm sure if you're a Navy pilot watching Top Gun is like fingernails on a chalkboard or whatever. But one thing they do tend to get right is their own industry. So a lot of the details that you'll see in a movie about movies will be true. So, um, like living in oblivion is about independent filmmaking and it's, it's pretty spot on in a lot of ways um, that, you know, there's a lot of movies that are about movies and, and they all have some grain of truth in them because that's their universe. That's the thing they know. Have you gotten any, um, um, not kickback, but uh, uh, any problems uh, from writing that book? Um, not so far. I, I kind of anticipated it after, when I did the second edition, I felt the need during COVID to do a second edition. It was the very beginning of COVID. I had no idea it was going to go on so long. So I did something in the first few months. And um, I saw that we were self-taping and I didn't have a chapter on self-taping and most books didn't have a chapter on self-taping. And I thought, well, that's what where we're at. And I predicted that we would continue to be using self-taping ongoingly. And so I thought, well, it needs a chapter on self-taping. But the other thing that happened was the Me Too movement. And I thought, well, if you're going to be a truth teller, that's another area where it's important to remove yes. the vagueness and let people know how to avoid Me Too experiences, what to do if you are a witness, if you're involved, if, you know, if you've already been traumatized, where to go for help, um, things like that. So I was a little concerned 
I'm still, as far as I know, the only acting book that has a chapter on Me Too issues. And I and my husband is convinced that that does impact how often I get hired now. Okay. But I have no idea. I can't, how would I know? They can't tell me that. They'd be in right. legal trouble. <laughs> have, you had, have you had personal experience with the Me Too? 94% of the women in our union report having had a sexual assault experience at work or My any goodness. work environment. My goodness. So 94% means it's 100% of us. So that was one of the humiliating parts of the whole Me Too thing was that suddenly me saying I was an actor meant me saying I'm an assault victim. Wow. Okay, so tell us more about uh, some of your other movies. What um, you've been with some big stars. I have. Yes, you have. <laughs> I have. You don't have to give us very dirt. Same adjacent. <laughs> you, you, you don't have to give us any dirt, but tell us some experiences with the big names. Well, I think I think the person that most people want to know about from me is Quentin because we've done so many things together. Um, yeah. yeah, we've done four projects together, and he even lent me his camera on my when I shot my first short film, which he Quentin made. Quentin Tarantino. Quentin Tarantino. Yeah. Yes. yes. So, um, so I've worked with him over and over, and so a lot of people want to know what that's like, and I have to say it's just glorious. It's just glorious. That man loves movies, like we love our mothers, and he is. He is the Shakespeare of our time as a writer. He is probably the most important director of the 90s insofar as that he shifted the way we tell stories in film. And I think now that he's, you know, older and studied in universities and all that, he is somebody who has affected just Americana, you know, like the entire culture in a permanent way. He's like a tattoo. Wow. Very nice. Very nice. Someone else you've worked with? Well, I've worked with so many people. It's almost easier if you ask me which one you want to hear about. But, <laughs> but I will, I mean, I can tell you that I would work with Leonardo DiCaprio again in a heartbeat. He's one of the most wonderful, sweet, fun guys. And he sings all day and he knows every word to every song ever written in the history of the world. He's a human jukebox and it's very cool. <laughs> that now that I've never heard that before. That's very interesting. Well, and he's also he was very kind and generous. My husband works with a nonprofit and he he was supportive of that. Um, my husband works with foster children and he was supportive of that. And um, he was a good citizen while he was here in New Orleans. Okay. Um, True Detective. Tell us about your experience on the show, True Detective. So I'm sure that to the lay person, they see me with Woody Harrelson and, and Matthew McConaughey and go, oh my God, that must've been, okay. I already knew both of those guys. <laughs> so, so I'm having to act like I just met them because I actually did know both of them. Um, Matthew McConaughey, I only knew peripherally. He and I just ran in the same circles and we ran into each other a few times. Um, but Woody and I actually did another movie together previous to that called Now You See Me. And he plays a hypnotist and I, in the opening of the movie, am his hypnotism... Subject? Yes, yes, that. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, so that was fun. So when we did Now You See Me together, he was, I don't want to say standoffish, but he was guarded. He was aware that we were strangers. And um, that part required that he hug me to him and stuff, you know, so 
you know, he was aware that we didn't know each other. When I did True Detective, he was like, Laura, and, you know, <laughs> so happy to see a familiar face. Any others that you want to talk about? I mean, I could do this all day. You just have to tell me what you care about. <laughs> so, I mean, and there's lots of people that I haven't worked with, but who I have a wonderful experience of. You know, I my acting class was just chock-a-block with celebrities. And I used to sit in the front row a lot because I have very long legs. And so I would sit with John Sally, who is a basketball player who has so many rings that it looks like brass knuckles, and RuPaul. <laughs> because Rue had Rue and John and I had the longest legs in the class. And so, you know, I have delightful stories about those people as well. I mean, there's lots of people that I spent time with that I don't have any work project with, but that who I got to spend a lot of time with and have a lot of fun with. I think the person that's um, been in my career the most, other than Quentin, would be Richard Dreyfus, who I've known now for 30 years. And um he started off as uh, somebody that I pursued um, to, you know, like I said, back before there was the internet, I just was asking people stuff and cold calling people and whatever. I asked him at a stage door some questions and we ended up becoming friends. And, and then that just kept evolving and evolving and evolving. And now he, you know, wrote the foreword for my book. He acted in the second or third thing I directed. Um, We've done a lot of things together. We've been in a couple of movies together. So yeah, we've done a lot of stuff together. And even during Katrina, he was very instrumental in helping me with the things I was able to do volunteer wise for Katrina. So he's just been a part of my life now for 30 years and probably one of my biggest influences. What are your current projects? What do you see happening in the future? Well, I just, uh, Queen Sugar, which you showed a piece of, um, mm -hmm. I was in the second second and third seasons, I think, of that. And they are finishing up. And so I just appeared, I think it was last week, in um, their final season, just to sort of button up my character. I uh, play the sponsor, the NA sponsor of that Bianca Lawson, who you saw in the clip. So that, that just got finished up. It was a small scene, but just cleaning up that character. I have a movie that I haven't seen yet that I'm supposed to see a screening of it soon. I have no idea when it comes out. That is called Off Ramp Juggalo Road. And do you know what a juggalo is? I know, right? So I had to look it up. Um, but I knew, I thought I knew and I was right. Have you ever heard of a band called the Insane Clown Posse? Oh, yeah. Okay. So a juggalo is a groupie to that group. And they paint their faces black and white like the group. And yeah, so they're um, they're a fan base and they are a culture. And it started in a world of like free for all, you know, you're free to be you and me kind of thing. And like um, true acceptance. And then it evolved and then sort of devolved from there. And so I don't know what all will be in the movie. But I do know that my characters in the very beginning, just to sort of set the tone. And um, I play like a prison warden uh, who is letting out a, a prisoner. And I am, I'm, you find out that that juggalo culture permeates all parts of society. <laughs> that, that's so, any uh, stars in that? 
I actually think I'm one of the bigger names in that one. Well, I did it because uh, the producer is one of my former students and she's an award-winning filmmaker. And I was very excited to work with her. And I've done that for a few of my former students that, that, um, you know, that I want to support them, but also the class I taught them was a graduate program class on teaching directors how to work with actors. So how better to find out whether my teachings work than to have my former students direct me. Oh, right, very good. All right, Laura, uh, we've talked about your acting career, but we're gonna talk about New Orleans right after this break. We'll be right back. Great. Thanks for listening to this interview. This is Russell, producer and co-host of Amber Live, reminding you that we stream on YouTube every Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern. Check out the hundreds of past interviews and all the comedy sketches, songs, and more from previous episodes. And remember to subscribe to us, both here and on youtube.com slash amberlive, so you don't miss a single new guest or a hysterical comedy sketch. All right. Well, let's get back into part three and last segment of our interview with Laura. All right. Welcome back. Laura, you talked earlier about being raised in a Louisiana family and you live in New Orleans. What yeah. brought you back there? Um, I, this is terrible. It's going to sound terrible, but it's true. I figured out that if I stayed in LA for my whole life, that I was going to die alone. <laughs> I dated everybody and was like, yeah, no, he's not here. <laughs> he's not here. And it's not because there aren't fat. I dated the most amazing people. So amazing, honestly, not just, you know, the people magazine, 50 most beautiful people kind of people, but, um, you know, like some of the most talented, some inventors, you know, what, like people who've changed the planet and really have just had an amazing experience of being single. But I, it isn't just about dating. It's about the, the general citizenry and culture. I kept looking around for people who valued what I valued and cared about what I cared about and coming up dry. And so I moved to New Orleans to be surrounded by people who care about what I care about and value what I value. And I, I used to hear a lot in LA that I had a very good heart. And I thought, yeah, these people don't know. I want to go where my heart is average. And so that's here. Here, my heart is average. I, I know the first time I visited New Orleans, I just knew I was in someplace special. Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't know if it was below sea level or what, but I knew something was special about that place. And since then, uh, Russell and I have visited uh, twice for Mardi Gras and once for Southern Decadence. And I know Russell's been there many more times than that. Well, you'll have to uh, tell me next time you're here, I'll tell you where to go and what to uh, see that you haven't already done. <laughs> oh, oh, very good. Very, very good. Uh, maybe you can go to the Rawhide with us. or uh, corner I office. used to live between Rawhide and Good Friends. I'm not kidding. <laughs> I'm not kidding. I used to live right between Raha and Goodfriend. I never felt safer in my life. I never uh, I, felt safer in my life. my husband, but. <laughs> I can understand that. What, um, how do you contribute to the New Orleans um, vibe? Well, one way is, uh, in addition to writing my five mystery books, um, uh, one way is that I'm a pussyfooter dancer. And the pussyfooters are a nonprofit group of over 100 women over the age of 30 
and we dance in the Mardi Gras parades and uh, we dance in, in lots and lots of parades. We actually do over 50 events per year. And those are mostly partnering with other nonprofits where like say you have a nonprofit and you need people to sell raffle tickets or you have a nonprofit and you need somebody to greet people at the door or you have a nonprofit and you want to put on a show and you'd like some dancing girls or whatever. We are available for that kind of thing by partnering with other nonprofits. And then we ourselves have a ball once a year, our Mardi Gras ball that's called Blush Ball and Blush Ball raises money for domestic violence, uh, those who are affected by that. Yeah, okay. And there I am. <laughs> <laughs> do you have a character name? I do. Pussy Unchained. <laughs> <laughs> oh my. Oh, I, where did you where do you get the outfits? How do you make those? So the corset is part of the uniform and the white combat boots are part of the uniform and that um white sleevey thing that you see is part of the uniform. And then everything else we bring in ourselves. Everything else is you personalize it yourself. So it's your own choice of wigs, your own choice of um well, we do have skirts and stuff that we look every year, every two years, we change up the uniform. Like you saw one that was sort of superhero. And then one year we had one that was more of like a Western, um, you know, old Western kind of thing with fringe on, you know, like we, we do it a little different every year, but it's always a burlesque feel. And that's a nod to the original women who crashed Mardi Gras to dance in it, which was the baby dolls who were prostitutes in the French quarter who um, one year just were like, why is it always the guys that get to have the fun? So they, back then the men used to call them baby dolls. So they dressed as baby dolls and filled their bottles with booze and went down to the Mardi Gras and crashed it. And so we are following in that tradition. And uh, the Pussyfooters were the first adult dance troupe since back in the baby doll days. And that was 2000, 2001, I think. And since then, <laughs> there are over 50 dance groups now. Isn't that great to be just to, to, to uh, encourage people to do things like that? Yes. Well, and especially because a lot of them, not all of them, some of them are just drinking clubs, which is also just fun. But a lot of them are also nonprofits and do a lot of good for the city. What is your, um, how, how do you explain New Orleans to someone? It's like going to Europe without leaving America. Mm -hmm. uh, you don't have to change your money. We all speak a version of English here. You might not understand us all. We have a lot of words you might not know, but we do all speak a version of English. And um, so it's easy to get here. And uh, and then and that's what you should do if you want to know what New Orleans is, because it really is. It is its own that was one of the troubles that I had, uh, not a trouble, but one of the things that I had to deal with writing my mystery books was that I needed to make sure there was a character who would help the reader to understand the more insider stuff, you know, like what's a second line or what's a Mardi Gras Indian or what, you know, those kinds of things. Because we just talk like that and don't realize that other people are like, wait, wait, whoa, 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 wait, what was that? <laughs> so, you know, or, oh, here's a little lanyap or whatever. People don't you know, if you're outside of New Orleans, we're speaking foreign language. So, um, yeah, so it is a culture that is its own thing. It isn't, 
It is like Europe, but it's not European. It's like the Caribbean, but it's not Caribbean. It's like parts of America, but it's not fully American either. What about the crime? We hear uh, there's a lot of crime in New Orleans this day. Is is that true? Well, um, we are, uh, I've lived in DC, New York, LA, and here, and I can tell you that every place I've lived has been the murder capital of the United States <laughs> at some point when I was there. So they just- Oh, 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 oh yeah. maybe, maybe we should look into, maybe <laughs> we should look into that. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, so there's a, uh, for me, a sensical thing that says, you know, cities have crime rates and those crime rates have to do with population numbers more than any other thing is that you have more people. So you have more crime. And um, I, I also I live in a blue city, but in a red state and red states have way higher crime. Yes, they do. So, so we are subject to that because we have way more guns than other states and way more weird laws. And, you know. When would you advise someone to come to New Orleans for the first time? What, what, and what would you ask, have them do? Come now. <laughs> right, right now? <laughs> well, I, I will tell you why I say that is because I took for granted that New Orleans would always be here. It's the oldest city in America, pretty much. And, and so I just thought it would always be here. And, then Katrina happened and I thought, it won't. There will come a day where New Orleans will be part of the bottom of the Gulf. And I don't know yeah. what to tell you, get here before that happens. Yeah. Um, the best time of year to come is actually October uh, because our weather is glorious. Um, we, we put on a week or two long Halloween. Um, but you know, we also, we, we, you may have heard we celebrate everything, everything. I mean, we have we have a, a festival called Fet Fest that's celebrating festivals. So we have festivals celebrating festivals. We'll celebrate anything. And so, you know, you can come any time of year, but the summers we have fewer festivals, fewer concerts. The musicians tend to go on the road and all that because it's you may have heard darn hot. <laughs> and uh, so, yeah. And then we have these hurricanes. And so the summer is the least good time to come unless your whole bag is avoiding crowds. If your whole bag is avoiding crowds, then come in the summer, uh, which is what I used to do. But, um, but yeah, the best time to come, I, I think is October because the weather's so nice and there is activity, but it's not overwhelming. Uh, I just did the crew of boo parade, which is our Halloween parade. Um, I think December 3rd, I think it is. I'm doing the Christmas parade, but we always have something going on. I'm, I'm participating. A, a friend of mine passed away and, and we'll be having a second line, which is a version of a parade. That's uh, like a funereal parade. Mm -hmm. um, and the, a bunch of the pussy footers will be in that because this person was one of our pussy handlers and was married to a pussy footer. So um, so there'll be some pussyfooters there and there were pussyfooters at my wedding. Um, <laughs> yeah. So there's no time of year where there's nothing to do and nothing to see and definitely no time of year where there's nothing to eat. I mean, if you're hungry, we got you. <laughs> if you like music, we got you. But, but the summer would be the least good time to come. And I do think that everybody should see the Mardi Gras at least once. Oh, I, I definitely agree with that as well. Very good. Well, thank you so much, Laura, for joining us tonight. Fascinating interview. Really enjoyed your stories and look forward to uh, seeing you more on the big screen. 
Thank you very much. I really, really enjoyed this. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Amber Live Interviews. Remember to subscribe to us so you don't miss a single minute of the fun. And remember, it is your support that keeps us going. You can make a donation through this podcast by using our Venmo at RJD Pro or by visiting us at AmberLive.tv and clicking on the Support Amber Live button. Thank you.